Mark 14. We have a, uh, a wall of storage cupboards on one wall of our garage, uh, and uh, we've managed to keep that fairly full over the years, so every time it gets a little bit empty, we run down to Walmart and <laughs> pick up a few more Christmas decorations. A week ago, we had a couple of boxes of records that needed to go out of our home office into the storage outside. And I knew it was kind of full out there, so I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull some stuff out and kind of rejigger and see what needs to happen. And So I started pulling out some boxes, and I, I keep some tarps in there and all manner of things, some car parts. And, and uh, I was surprised. I, as I got down to the bottom, I thought, there's kind of some spiders in here. I thought, where did they come from? And then I got down there and looked, and I could see all the way to the daylight through the wall. There's a hole about that big in the wall. It went all the way out, and I thought, oh, man, that was a year and a half ago. Mark Holland put in a furnace in my house, and I moved some of those pipes, and I never filled that hole in. So I've been getting cold air and spiders and Lord knows what else coming in there. I just thought the garage was a cold place. I didn't know there was an actual problem that needed to be fixed. So I uh, definitely got after it and plugged that up this week. It's not hard for us in our lives when there is a problem to realize there's something wrong here. I'm struggling. But sometimes we can't discern why that is. Sometimes the, we, we, we look about and we think, I, I'm not sure why this is going on. We know that in general our problem in life is sin, but sometimes it's elusive and we can't quite see it. Maybe there's some boxes packed in front of it. And until we clear things away, we can't tell what our real difficulty is. As we continue to follow Christ to the cross, we're going to get a lesson in sin and understanding sin today from some of the pretty obviously sinful ways that people acted toward him. Please follow as I read, starting in Mark 14, 42. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss... He is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as, they, as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Let's drop down to verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself by the fire. Now the chief priest and the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, 
I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another one made without hands. But not even did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it. And he said, I neither know nor understand. And we hear that terrible part about Peter. Let's drop down to chapter 15. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whoever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with the fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the insurrection. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. And Pilate answered them and saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so, he should, so that he would rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them, What do you want me to do to him who is called king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. The first thing that we understand about sin from this passage is this. Sin is devious. Sin is devious. We looked at the beginning of this passage and we understood something about sin um, Back in chapter 14, verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. The leadership of Israel, referred to here as the uh, chief priest and the scribes, other times he's referred to as the, the priests, 
the elders and the scribes, just so you know who those people are, the there, were more than one, there was more than one man alive who had been the high priest, and so together they're referred to as the high priests, even though there was only one that was designated for that. The elders is that group of men also called the Sanhedrin. They would have been the, the, uh, like the city council of Israel, if you will. They had a certain authority over the civil affairs uh, of Israel, which were intertwined with their beliefs. And then there were the scribes, and the scribes were people who copied the Old Testament by hand. If you wanted a copy of the Bible in that day, you would pay a man to copy it, and because they were copying the Bible all the time, they became experts in the content of it. So those three groups together, I'm going to refer to as the leadership of Israel, and they said, we have got to get Jesus if you will, under arrest so we can put him to death. But verse 2 said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. They had already decided Jesus was going to be put to death just because they wanted him put to death. And they said, how shall we arrest him? Well, we're going to have to do it in the darkness. Because if we do it right in the broad daylight in front of everybody, everybody's going to get in a big uproar and they're, going to, they're not going to let us do this. The word trickery uh, in the New King James is translated stealth in the New American Standard. I like that. The NIV says sly. The idea that somehow we're going to have to figure out a way to do this so nobody knows what we're doing. Luke tells us why they were stealthy about arresting Jesus. So he went his way and conferred. This is Judas. He went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray them, him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. In other words, if they just walked up to Jesus while he was standing in the temple teaching or or healing somebody and said, come on, we're putting you under arrest, we're going to put you to death. If he did that, they would be shouted down, perhaps physically stopped by the crowd, because in general, the, the common man in Israel thought Jesus was at least a good man or a prophet. They certainly didn't think that he deserved to be put to death. Matthew gives us a little more insight. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, heard Christ's parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. He had just, he had just um, shared a whole series of truths that were not complimentary to them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Jesus did some teaching, and as the Pharisees were listening, after a while they went, he's talking about us. Let's do him some harm. And then they said, oh, we can't do it now because all these people are looking. We have to take our sin into the dark. Sin avoids open, honest inquiry and discussion. Sin runs from the light. John 1 says that Jesus was the light and the light came into the world and the men did not want the light because their deeds were evil. The Pharisees were not interested in discussing what the crowds thought about Jesus. 
They weren't interested in coming into the temple where Jesus is teaching and standing up and saying, I want to tell you why you should not listen to this man. Over in England, there is a park in London that's become kind of a famous place for people to have philosophical debates. Christians will, will get up literally on a soapbox or a, some type of a, a small raised platform and share their message, and other people will argue with them and vice versa, and there's all of this debate going on. The Pharisees weren't interested in that. They didn't want to talk about who Jesus was. They had a predetermined outcome, and so they hid their behavior because they wanted to get to their predetermined outcome. That's what sin does. We, we, we have something in mind. I want this. I need that. I have to get here. I have to go there. I have to have this relationship or that or whatever it is. I have to have this thing. And in the process of going from here to there, I'm going to do it when nobody is watching. I'm going to hide from it. And of course, we foolishly think we can hide from God in some way as well. We cannot. We all like to think that we know what is best for our life. The leadership of Israel thought they knew what was best for Israel and themselves. And so they were determined to get that. But the only way they could get it was to hide, to, 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 to work in the darkness. Sin loves darkness. Sin also loves respectability. Kind of, a, kind of a, uh, almost a paradox between those two. But look at verse 55 of John, or excuse me, of Mark 14. Um, now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave a false witness or a lying testimony against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. Then someone rose up and bore a false witness against him, saying, We heard him say... I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another one made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And if you don't know, in that testimony, there is a misspeaking about Jesus besides the fact that they couldn't get it right. And the misspeaking is this. He never said, destroy the physical temple, and I will build it up in three days. He said, destroy this temple, and I will build it up in three days. He's talking about his own body. And so they couldn't get it right. They brought testimony, and the testimony didn't agree. Now, here's the interesting thing to me. Why did the Jewish leaders even seek testimony to convict Jesus of wrong? They'd already decided what? They already decided they're going to kill him. Why did they have to have testimony? Why did they have to have this court trial, which was so full of so many legal um, wrongs? Because they wanted to be respectable. They wanted their sin to be respectable. Eventually, they came to the part where he said, I am the Son of God, and, and you eventually will see me. But when this part about the temple, they brought it up, and I can imagine them going home and saying this, well, you know, I... I didn't really want to put him to death, but he blasphemed the temple, and what are you going to do? They wanted the respectability of saying they'd had a trial. No matter how respectable you try to make sin, 
it is still sin. You can call it sharing a concern, but it's still gossip. You can call it stress relief, but it's still drunkenness. You can call it making love, but it's still fornication. That's a pig. That's a beauty queen. No, not a beauty queen? Just a pig with lipstick on it. (laughs) Sin wants to be respectable. And so we try to put lipstick on the pig. We try to make it into something that it is not by giving it some other name or excusing the circumstance or whatever it is that we do. These fellows were out to murder Jesus but they couldn't bring themselves to look in the mirror and saying, I'm going to murder a man. And so they tried to bring respectability to their sin by having a court trial, even though they did not follow the court proceedings of their day or the ones that Jesus had set up. You can call it what you want, but sin is still sin, no matter how respectable you try to make it. So sin is devious, Sin is also arrogant. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, you know, what should have happened once they they couldn't get this testimony, the, the trial should have been over. I mean, what happens today when you go to court and uh, the judge says, okay, where's the testimony? And there's no testimony. What does the judge say? Case dismissed. That's what an honest person would have done. But no, they pushed on to try to find some reason to put him to death. Verse 60, the high priest stood up and said, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And in another one of the gospels, the high priest actually put him under oath. Even though Jesus didn't agree to it ahead of time, he said, I, I, I'm asking you by God in heaven, are you the son of God? And for him not to answer would have been dishonest at that point. It, w- it would not have been appropriate for him to keep silent. And so he said, I am. And even in that answer, that's a veiled theological reference. The name of God in the Old Testament, I am that I am. He says, I am. And, and furthermore, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. What further need do we have of witnesses? And, and on they went. Now, listen to the arrogance, though, of these folks. First of all, they were arrogant against God's messenger. Here's Christ. Christ is saying, I am the Son of God. And they said, they said that's wrong. That's not possible. You've blasphemed, etc." But all the way back to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, three years earlier, listen to this interchange between some of the people who were in this leadership group and John the Baptist. They went and asked him, who are you, to John the Baptist. And John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, from this leadership group here. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Deliverer, 
nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And the next day John saw Jesus coming and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, these people were around the ministry of Jesus and here is John who was recognized as a prophet so much so that as he's preaching God's message, people were baptized by him to show their commitment to the message of repentance and of following God. And the scripture says all of Israel went out to John. Now I don't know if if that means every single individual or if it means the vast majority, but that many people went out and said, you're a prophet, John, and he was a prophet. Jesus called him the greatest man ever born. And what did he say about Jesus? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Pharisees were arrogant enough to ignore God's prophetic proclamation about Christ. It was even prophesied in the Old Testament, there will be one who comes and he will, he will be the forerunner, the one who speaks ahead of time to prepare the way for Christ. And they ignore God's prophetic proclamation through John. How do you respond to God's truth? You know, the, the Pharisees tried to ignore, tried to avoid. One of the ways we avoid God's truth today, the simplest way that we avoid, is to leave it on the shelf. You know, if it's on the shelf and if it's closed up, and if we're not reading it, it's sort of like it's not there. But it is there. One of the ways people try to avoid God's truth today is is they say, that's your interpretation. You read the plain truth of Scripture and they say, well, that's what you say it means. Either it means what it says and it says what it means or it doesn't. Probably the most used excuse for not following God's word is believing that you have extenuating circumstances. Well, I, I know what God's word says, but my situation is like this, and so I just don't think it possibly could be meant for me in my situation. The Pharisees looked at God's word and said, no, we're not going to follow it. We're not going to follow God's proclamation by his prophet. They were also arrogant against Christ's clear qualifications. This is the most amazing of all. In 2 Peter uh, 1.3, it says that we were called to salvation by the glory and virtue of Christ. That's, that's a, an important little summary of the, of the existence of Christ. The word glory refers to the fact that he was divine. Only God is spoken of as having that kind of glory. And he had the glory of God, and he demonstrated the glory of God when he healed people when he spoke of things that he could only know by being God, his divine works, and his virtuous life. He lived a perfect life. Listen to the interchanges that Jesus had over this issue of glory and virtue. First of all, his virtuous life from John 8. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You know, he would speak God's word and the Pharisees would hate him for it. 
But this is the question he asked. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, you can take any other character almost in the Bible and say, well, look at the sin here, the sin here, the sin here. Jesus Christ held himself up for scrutiny and he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Isn't that an amazing question? None of us can say that. <laughs> None of us would say that. We don't want anybody looking and, well, here's one, here's one, here's one. But he said, I've been speaking God's truth to you. Am I a sinner? And the silence was deafening. And then, of course, with his works. I have a greater witness than John's. See, that, that when John said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that was a witness. John gave a witness supporting Christ. I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So here he is. Am I not doing the works that I'm supposed to be doing according to the Old Testament prophecy? Jesus' life and works demonstrated that he was God's chosen deliverer for Israel, but the Jewish leadership refused to humbly consider the truth of his life. And he, if that wasn't enough, as we just said, he consistently held himself up for biblical scrutiny. Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They clearly understood that he said, I'm the son of God. And it made them so mad they want to kill him. But listen to this. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He basically held up the Bible. If he could have held one up, it was a big scroll, so he couldn't hold the whole thing up, and said, am I not the guy? The leaders, <coughs> excuse me, the leaders could have opened the Old Testament and asked some pertinent questions. Where were you born? Bethlehem. Was your mother a virgin? Yes. Are your parents from the family line of David? Yes. Have you lived a perfectly righteous life? Yes. Have you opened the eyes of the blind? Interesting, something I read recently that the author, the, the, the Bible teacher was saying that opening the eyes of the blind was particularly a miracle connected with the Messiah. Have you opened the eyes of the blind? Yes. <clears throat> Have you healed the sick? Yes. Have you spoken God's word? Yes. They could have made their checklist as long as the whole Old Testament. And he would have said yes, yes, yes. Here's what I'm struck with. I'm struck by the fact that no such conversations are ever recorded by the authors of the gospel. We never hear a time where the Pharisees said, now I want to talk to you about who you are. We do see Nicodemus going to Jesus privately, and he was one of this leadership group. But we don't hear them having that discussion. I don't think it's presumptive to believe that the leaders had those conversations and that Bible study in private. 
Can you imagine a, a person like Jesus bursting onto the scene and, and them going to lunch and not saying, hey, what do you think about this Jesus guy? You see, there were many people who set themselves up and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. In fact, Barabbas was probably following one of those guys, we would call them uh, revolutionaries today, trying to throw off Roman government. But there were many people, and they all had a little uprising and a little bit of success, and then they were killed or died or whatever. So is it possible that these leaders would, would go to lunch, go to dinner, hang out with each other, have their meetings, and not talk about Jesus? And perhaps there's Nicodemus, who's called the teacher of Israel, going, well, guys, did you see this, and did you see this, and did you see this? And they're going, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. If you're new to the study of Christ, let me tell you this, too. This part of the Bible we call the Old Testament is what they had at the time of Christ. And the same Bible they had is the same Bible we have, and it's the same Bible the Jewish people are reading today. It's not like, oh, different books saying different things. They could have looked in the book and verified who he was, but they said, no, we're not interested in Christ's qualifications. We're not interested in what God's messenger says. We know better. We are above that. And so they were arrogant against Christ's qualifications. They're also arrogant against God's method of justice. Um, one of the, you know, we see here in the text they're looking for witnesses for their testimony to agree, and that's because according to the Old Testament standard, capital punishment required two at least corroborating witnesses. And, and, and here's the scripture verse for that. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So they knew that standard, and they're working toward that standard. There were many, many um, wrongs in this trial. If, there are whole books written about the things that were wrong in this trial according to the Jewish legal standards of the day. But with this one biblical standard, we again, we go back to this text where it says, are you the son of God? And he says, I am. And they said, we're going to put you to death for saying that. But as we've just examined, the evidence supported, the evidence supported his claim. Jesus had already offered two witnesses to his own truthfulness, his glory and virtue. These leaders of God's people were arrogant against God's prophet, the Messiah, the method of justice. They weren't willing to trust in the method of justice. So ultimately, they were arrogant against God himself. There was another time when God's people were being oppressed by this same group of leaders in the book of Acts. They, they were out preaching, they, and the Jews didn't like that, and so they brought them in, they had a trial, and so on. And here's part of the end of that trial. One, one of their leaders, a teacher named Gamaliel, said, now I say to you, to the other leadership, keep away from these men, from the apostles. Let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is from God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight 
against God. And they agreed with him. What Gamaliel said to the other leadership was, guys, be careful here. These people say they're preaching God's truth, and it's a little bit of a gray area. We're not quite sure what's going on, so we better take kind of a hands-off approach. And if it's of God, we can't fight it. If it's not of God, it'll come to nothing. Great advice from Gamaliel. Why didn't the leaders with Christ take that same advice? Because they had their minds made up, they knew what they wanted to do, they wanted to put Christ to death. And so ultimately, they were fighting God. When we are not humble toward God's word and toward um, the things that God has put into the ministry, when we are not humble, we are ultimately fighting God. Listen to this verse about humility from 1 Peter 5. You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, and all of you be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility. Why? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we're really trying to live for the Lord, and we're, we're saying, I want God's outcome in my life, then we humble ourselves first and foremost to God's word. When God's truth instructs us, we say, yes, I will do what God says, not just because it's written on the page and it's right and wrong, but because when I line up for battle, and this word resist was, was one talking about warfare, when I line up for battle in my life, I want God next to me, not over there opposing me. Do you see that? God resists the proud. I don't know about you, I don't want to be standing across the line from God. I don't want that. Sin is devious, sin is arrogant, and lastly, sin is pragmatic. To be pragmatic means we do what works without regard to what is right or best. Look at chapter 15 and this character Pilate who was the Roman governor of Israel. Chapter 15, verse 1, immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate, the Roman governor, and of course they did that because they, they didn't have authority to put people to death. They could punish people in a number of ways if they broke certain laws, but they couldn't put people to death. Verse 2, then Pilate said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things. If you looked at some of the other gospel accounts, they just blasted out different kinds of accusations. Verse four, then Pilate said, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. Pilate had probably been in front of a lot of criminals and, and, and they did not act like Jesus acted. Sin is pragmatic. What does that mean? It means that instead of doing what's right, sin listens to the powerful in the world, the powerful in our life. Listen to what John wrote here about this. Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? 
And they answered and said, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. You know what that sounds like in common language? Take our word for it, he deserves to die. In other words, I'm, I'm not here about the details, just take our word for it, he deserves to die. And then ultimately, in, in chapter 15 of Mark, verse 14, we read the words, um, excuse me, um, not 14, but, uh, oh, backing up there a little bit, we read that he says, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. Pilate does his examination of Jesus, and he comes to the conclusion, this guy is not a criminal. This guy doesn't deserve to die. But who is he listening to? Is he listening to the truth, or is he listening to the powerful leaders who are out there saying, we want him put to death, we want him put to death? If Pilate had acted on principle, he would have released Jesus right then and there. But he was more concerned to keep the power people in his life happy at that moment. John said this, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's, pretty, that's a pretty clear evaluation that Pilate knew he did, should not be put to death. So Pilate knew the right thing to do. Listen to what even his wife, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said to him, have nothing to do with that just or righteous man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. God apparently gave her a troubling dream, and she came out saying, this guy's righteous. Cut, get, let him go and get away from that. All of these inputs, Pilate is saying, the guy is innocent, the guy is innocent, and God's given him this input through his wife, and yet what does he do? He doesn't turn him loose because he's listening to those who are powerful. In all of our lives, there are people who are powerful. Sometimes we're related to them, sometimes we work with them. And we have to try to discern the difference between what's right and what's gonna make people happy. Pilate listened to the powerful. He also listened to the majority. Look at verse eight. Then the multitude, in other words, out in front of where he's conducting this trial, there's a big open area, if you will, and there's all these people, hundreds, thousands of people out there, then the multitude said, release, you know, we want you to release a prisoner like you always do. And he said, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they got him, the, the leadership stirred them up to say, no, put him to death. And so what does, who does Pilate listen to? He listens to the crowd. A Roman governor ultimately had to answer to Caesar and part of what he would have to answer for is peace in his town, in his area, in his region that he was governing. And so if these people are coming and pressing on him saying, put this guy to death, put this guy to death, and all these people are gathered pushing him, pushing him, then he's got to be a pretty strong man to stand up and say, no, it's wrong. It's tough for us sometimes to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. 
But Jesus said we should be real careful about who we are afraid of, who we listen to. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yeah, I say to you, fear him. And if we were to put it on a positive note, if we were to flip the coin over, we'd find the Apostle Paul saying, am I trying to please people? If I still tried to please people, I would not be the servant of Christ. Now, some people are perfectly happy when you stand for Christ and stand for those things that are right, but there are many people who are not. And there might be some in your family, and there might be some in your workplace, there might be some in your club or your organization, whatever it is. And Jesus said, I'm telling you, you should be very careful about who you listen to, about who you fear, who it is that, that you won't oppose. Oh, oh I've got to keep the peace with so-and-so and with all of these people. When God is saying, do the right thing. Do the right thing. And that's why very often sin if it listens to the powerful and listens to the majority, what it ends up doing is seeking a compromise. Look at verse 15. There's a little phrase here that should, should have gotten its own chapter in the Bible. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd. I mean, can you be any more clear than that? What, what was he trying to do? What was he attempting to do? Trying to make everybody happy. Trying to gratify the crowd, what did he do? He released Barabbas, the criminal, and he delivered Jesus after he scourged him to be crucified. Do you know that little phrase, after he scourged him? Do you know what that means? This is one version of an instrument of pain called a cat of nine tails. It was a Roman tool of of uh, punishment. In the time of Christ, it not only looked like this, but on the end down here would be sharp pieces of metal or bone, something sharp that would cut. And if you've seen the movie, The Crucifixion of, the Christ, uh, of Christ, that's a pretty accurate depiction of what would happen. They would, they would whip somebody with this thing and drag it across their back, and they would do that 39 times. Now think about Pilate for just a minute, will you? Pilate says, I find no fault in him. <laughs> but everybody else is saying, he needs to die, he needs to die. And so Pilate goes, mm, mm, how can I bring these two things together? I know I'll beat him within an inch of his life. Scripture doesn't say it, but it, it would almost seem that he was trying to say, hey guys, isn't this enough? There is no such thing as a compromise between sin and righteousness. There is no such thing as a compromise between sin and righteousness. Sin always makes righteousness sinful. Or righteousness corrects the sin, one or the other. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, God says, Light and darkness cannot exist in the same place at the same time.
At our house, we have a kitchen garbage can under the sink, like all good middle-class people. And we have another garbage can right outside the garage door. It's not too far from our kitchen to the door going out into the garage. We have another garbage can out there, and we put big stuff in there so that under the sink doesn't get so full. I don't know why. We should just get a bigger garbage can, but that's what we do. And since I have uh, been a grandfather and the children come to visit with their wee little ones, that garbage can outside the door is where those little bundles of joy get placed. Bundles of joy? You know, the ones that come off their behind. And what happens is all the kids will come, you know, a bunch of them will be there for Easter, and they will leave, and about a day later I'll go, my garage stinks. And I will look down there and I will see that little bundle of joy, a little bundle of blessing. Friends, dirty diapers are like sin. They all stink and get worse with age. It's pretty easy for us to see the sin of those who hated Christ. We look at Pilate and go, what a weak guy you were. Do we cave to the people around us? We look at the, the leaders of Israel and say, wow, you didn't humble yourself un, into God's word or you wouldn't have put Christ to death and yet do we humble ourselves? They tried to hide their sin to make it look better than it was to keep people from seeing it. Do, do we hide ours? If you really want to honor Christ this Easter season, ask God to help you see, perhaps to smell your own sin and say God help me to get it out of here Heavenly Father mm, mm. there's not one perfect person in this room uh, we look forward to being perfect someday when we see you face to face when that work of, of, of righteousness is complete in us but right now we've all got a little bit of the taint of sin and, and we need to see it and we need to hear it, we need to smell it and know where it is so that we can take it out. Father, help us. Help us not to criticize those people in the Bible without looking to our own selves today. Help us to see what we need to cleanse. I pray in Christ's name, amen.